Kavanaugh, and I'll be filling in for Mikey today so we can let her voice get a, a little bit more time to, to heal. Let's go ahead and open with um, a prayer. Please pray with me. Dearest Heavenly Father, we praise you for loving the world, Jew and Gentile, so much that you would send your only Son, so that whoever believes in you can have eternal life. We confess to you that we are easily discouraged. We confess that we lack faith, even though you have proven trustworthy throughout history and in our own lives. Yet you have revealed yourself to us in sending your Son, giving us your word, and filling us with your Spirit. Thank you for these great gifts. We thank you for the unsearchable riches we have in Christ. Thank you for the gospel, which not only makes us at peace with you, but with each other as well. Please bless us with an extra measure of your Holy Spirit today as we study your word. May he help us to see you clearly in our passage today. May we see and know that though we may not understand your ways, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. Please use this time to continue the work that you have begun in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that there is a mysterious red button in downtown Houston? I first heard about it when searching for fun things to do with my kids, and multiple websites mentioned an unmarked red button under Preston Bridge. What will happen if you press it? Will the water drain out of Buffalo Bayou? Will a squadron of police cars rush to the site? Will the city explode? Will a nuclear missile be launched at North Korea? The unknown of the future can be terrifying. Today's, today's passage is also about a mystery, but a mystery of a different kind. Mysteries in the Bible refer to something that has once been hidden and it subsequently made known. In this case, before Christ, God had not fully made known his plan to engraft all nations into his family. As we see in our passage today, God revealed his plan of expanding the reach of the gospel to the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, this wasn't just a bit of intellectually intriguing information for Paul, but rather, Paul was calling this Hebrew of Hebrews to be the missionary to the Gentiles. At the time of this letter, Paul was probably under house arrest in Rome. Was he discouraged by his seeming setback to his mission? No. This passage is a slight detour to convince the Ephesians not to be discouraged about the power of the gospel or God's control in the world, even though at times it may seem that the forces of evil are prevailing. No, Paul knows he is right where God would have him. And though, although he is physically confined to his house, the gospel can never be enchained. In fact, the letters Paul wrote during the time of imprisonment went out, were copied, circulated, and God's word, written within the confines of that house in Rome, have reached us here today. Though we may not understand God's ways, we can trust that in the end, they will be glorious and good. Let me say that again, sisters. Though we may not understand God's ways, we can trust that in the end, they will be glorious and good. So let's take a closer look at this detour of encouragement. We'll look at our text under three headings, the messenger, the mystery, and the emanation. First, we'll look at the messenger of this beautiful mystery, the gospel for all nations, in verses 1 through 3. Our text says, 
For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. What a great work God did in Paul. It wasn't enough that he took him from persecuting the church to building it up, but God took a man deeply proud of his Jewish heritage and sent him to tell the uncircumcised, pork-eating, Sabbath-breaking Gentiles they were welcome to the same inheritance, the same inheritance as himself. Was his ministry done with a begrudging heart? No. In verses 7 through 9, Paul makes it clear that he considers it a privilege to serve God by spreading the gospel. We get another insight into his heart in verse 2 as he speaks of his stewardship of God's grace. God entrusted great riches in his care, and he has a duty to his Lord to utilize it well. He uses the same term to describe himself in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 24 to 26. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. In both our passages today and the verses I just read in Colossians, Along with the role of stewardship, Paul sees suffering as an honor. This is because what Paul suffers for the gospel, he, this is because when Paul suffers for the gospel, he is in the best of company. Our suffering Savior has showed us this mysterious, contrary to the world, way to glory. This passage shows us that suffering for the gospel is, not, is something not to be feared or even avoided. What are our lives but living sacrifices? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul paints a similar picture. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Oh, give us faith, Lord, to see suffering in this light. In our passage, Paul also describes himself as a prisoner of Christ. A prisoner for Caesar, certainly, but for Christ? Yes, he was imprisoned because he was preaching Christ. Yet wasn't it even more that his imprisonment was his act of loving service to Christ? Certainly, he took full advantage of every moment of those two years of house arrest to write numerous epistles and witness to his guards. Wait, wouldn't the natural response to imprisonment when you thought your calling was to spread the gospel to the nations be serious discouragement? However, God is sovereign over all things. Pastor Ian Hamilton puts it this way. It's gloriously liberating, as well as reassuring, to know that your life is governed by the sovereign, gracious, and wise will of God. Paul is in prison because the cause of the gospel will best be served by him being there. Paul explains more of why this is so in his epistle to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Our circumstances are part of his plan, 
and can thus be trusted to ultimately be good. Paul knew that when God allows things that we can't make sense of, it does not mean they are senseless. In fact, it means they're probably the epicenter of some mysterious and glorious work that God is going to do. Another reason for Paul's imprisonment is the Gentiles themselves. Why does he mention this in his letter? Certainly not to make them feel bad. Rather, it is to highlight the importance he puts upon bringing them the gospel. It is so essential to him that he would risk his own well-being for the sake of theirs. And even now, he is not dwelling upon his circumstances. His primary concern is to help them appreciate the riches of God, the riches that God has bestowed upon them in Christ. Likewise, Christ cares for his bride, the church, in the same way. Christ's love is the epitome of self-denying love, and 1 John 3.16 tells us our response should be to do the same. By this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let me read that again. For this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This way of thinking and acting is so contrary to the way of the world. It springs from and reflects God's mysterious, incomprehensible ways. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, 18, chapter 3, verses 18 through 19a puts it well. Let no one deceive himself. If any of you thinks he is wise in this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Though we may not understand God's ways, as we live according to them, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. And that brings us to our first truth. Suffering for the gospel is a privilege. Is there something God is calling you to that is hard for you to accept? How does the Bible's witness of how God changed and used Paul encourage you to obey God's calling in your life? When you serve, what is your heart attitude? How can you cultivate an attitude of joyful sacrifice? Our next division is the mystery, found in verses 4 through 6. Let me read our text. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verses 4 through 6 tell us the generations before, Christ, before Paul and before Christ did not know that the Gentiles were to be a part of God's people. Sure, there were hints. Think of the Moabitess Ruth. Yet in her declaration, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge, your people shall be my people, and your God my God, shows how because of God's special covenant relationship with Israel, in order for anyone to enjoy fellowship with God, they had to become a part of the people of Israel. If you remember back a few weeks, we learned about Jesus' mighty work, of bringing those far off near. And the dividing wall of hostility has been broken by Christ so that there is now one new man. I don't know about you, 
but have a hard time grasping how great a division there really was between Jew and Gentile. Radical is an apt word to describe the separation between God's covenant people and those living outside of God's revelation. As we studied Leviticus a few years back, did you ever ponder just how much time and energy the Israelites must have put into carrying out all of God's requirements? This wasn't just a hobby. Belonging to God was all-consuming. Every part of their lives was shaped by his claim upon them. These people ate different foods. They ordered their days differently. Their economies had different rules. Their social interactions had different standards. And even their social fabric was made of strikingly different stuff. Not surprisingly, because of this, there was a history of hostility. Think of what we learned of Edom in Malachi chapter 1 and how they refused to let God's people pass through their land as they left Egypt. Think about the generations of mistreatment under the Egyptians. No wonder it was a surprise that God would include them as fellow heirs. Great wrongs needed to be forgiven. Hearts needed to be mended. People needed to be remade. And Christ did all this on the cross. It's hard to imagine some people changing. It's hard to imagine some enemies being reconciled. Still, God, in his mysterious ways, can do just that. He has done it, as we see in this passage. He has also done it in us. And so, though we may not understand God's ways, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. How does God do this great work, the fulfillment of the mystery Christ won at the cross? We see in verse 6 that it is through the gospel. For Paul, the gospel was God taking the very least, or technically the leastest, of all the saints, and given, and he was given not only forgiveness, but a calling. He had things to regret. There was innocent blood on his hands. And yet God chose him, and God used him. And when we're honest with ourselves, we are likewise the leastest. Even so, we have learned in chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And just as Paul describes three times in this passage that his salvation is for the purpose of bringing the Gentiles the gospel, so too our salvation is for the sake of others. Let me say it again, sisters. Our salvation is not just our, for our own personal benefit. God has called us to himself for a reason. And this is our second truth. Our salvation is not just for our personal benefit. For what purpose has God saved you? Yet as we saw in Ephesians 1, this gospel is more than just the saving of individual souls. Moreover, it's a transformation of the very cosmos. And 2 Peter um, chapter 3, verse 13 describes it as a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This process is begun as a united family of Jew and Gentiles, the church, worship together and will one day end with all creation at peace and united in worship of the one true God. Though we may not understand God's ways, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. Our third truth is... The church's unity is the first step in Christ's unifying the cosmos. Who in the church do you need to work towards unity with? 
What are you doing to actively work to forgive and overlook offenses for the glory of your Savior? How could you guard the door of your mouth to speak words that foster love, peace, and appreciation rather than strife and discontent in the church? Our final division is the emanations or the consequences of the revelation of this great mystery. Let's look at verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Verse 10 tells us, that the marvel of United Church is witness of God's wisdom so clear that it penetrates all the way to the spiritual realms. Can you imagine on that Friday so long ago when our Savior breathed his last breath and the sky went dark as the Father turned his face away from the Son, that Satan and his minions, who are not omniscient, must have thought they had won. Jesus' followers scattered in hidden fear, and it seemed like both the death of God's Son as well as the death of his covenant people. What marvelous, glorious victory it was then that he not only conquered the grave and the power of sin over us, but also supernovaed the reach of his redemption. Like a seed that looks dead and then swells, bursts, and stretches upward and down, our Savior's death was just the beginning of the great growing expansion of the church, not only around the globe, but through the ages. What a glorious mystery indeed. And so it is that our living with one another in the church, graciously, united in purpose, working to forgive each other, serving, each, serving together, carrying each other's burdens. In these small and big heart choices, God's glory shines like a semi-truck's headlights on high beam, even in Satan's rearview mirror. He can't miss it. Though we may not understand God's ways, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. Verse 11 speaks of this unifying work of Christ as being his eternal purpose. Though it was previously hidden, we see evidence of this plan A throughout the Old Testament. Think of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The prophet Isaiah also had a glimpse of this eternal plan in chapter 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. As we have seen in our study of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered for my name, and a pure offering. 
for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Still, the full glory of God's uniting work was not known. Pastor Ian Hamilton puts it this way, the, incarn the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ ushered in a new age of heightened blessing and more fully revealed truth. Shadow gave way to substance, type to anti-type, and promise to fulfillment. In Christ, truth does not replace error. Rather, it comes into its fullest flowering. There is a timeline, a progression to this story. From the Old Testament promises, a few individual examples in, of ingrafting, to Christ's work on the cross, then Paul's receiving the revelation and call, and finally, the gospel reaching the ears of the Gentiles. It wasn't instantaneous, but a slow, progressive work of God. We live in an age of instant gratification, yet we see that in the Bible, part of God's glory is our waiting, waiting in trust to see what he will do. Don't miss this. I'll say it again. We see that in the Bible, part of God's glory is our waiting and trust to see what he will do. This passage is one example of God's great plan formed in eternity past, promised, and finally fulfilled in Christ. We need to know his glorious workings are carried out in his perfect time. Then we can trust that though we may not understand God's ways now, they will prove to be glorious and good. This is our fourth truth. Our waiting on the Lord and trust to see what he will do brings him glory. What are you waiting on God for? What in this passage bolsters your faith as you do so? Next, Paul asserts that we can be bold in coming to God because of Jesus. Here, Paul lays on layer upon layer to describe the impact of Christ's work on the cross on our relationship with God. Boldness, confidence, access, faith. We were far off, and Jesus has brought us near. During the time of the tabernacle and later the temple, the Gentiles were only allowed to enter the outermost area of the premises called the Court of the Gentiles. Even the Jews were limited in their access to God as the high priest alone was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. Therefore, when the curtain tore from top to bottom, it radically changed the way we can access God. We are now a priesthood of believers who can come directly to God in prayer at any time, for any reason, Jew or Gentile. First Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, further elucidates this great doctrine. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but inside of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What a glorious emanation of Christ's work at the cross this is. Our boldness, confidence, access, and faith arise from more than just the removal of the need for an intercessory priest, however. Paul has told the Ephesians that they are heirs. Thus God our Father delights when we come to him as his children. Who could have seen this coming? An enemy forgiven? That's astounding enough yet to go so far as welcoming us into the family and loving us wholly and truly, treasuring us as our older brother Jesus, 
That is goodness that takes our breath away. Finally, Paul comes to the end of his argument and asks the Ephesians not to be discouraged by his imprisonment. In fact, he calls it their glory. How can it be glorious to be imprisoned? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul describes his mystery as death is working in us, but life in you. Just as our Savior's death has become our glory, so too Paul's imprisonment is the Ephesians' glory. Again, it's a privilege to follow our Savior's example in suffering for others. Pastor Ian Hamilton explains it thus, If we choose to avoid tribulations for the sake of Christ, we give the lie to our claim to be joint heirs with Christ. God has inextricably joined suffering to glory. You cannot have one without the other. The servant is not greater than his master. Our sufferings may not require our life or even imprisonment, although we should be prepared to do just that if God calls us to. But so much more should we joyfully obey, even when it is inconvenient. To share the gospel even at the risk of losing a friend, to love a family member even if they are unloving, to persevere in parenting even when our children seem not to be listening, we press on in the hope that one day our sacrifice will be their glory. And so, though we may not understand God's ways, especially in our suffering, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. Our fifth truth is we are joint heirs with Christ as we share in his suffering. Which of God's commandments have you not obeyed because it means you will suffer? How can Paul, and even more, Christ's example, encourage you? As we wrap up our time with this passage, let's take a step back and see what we learn about ourselves and about God. In our pride, we often go through life presuming to understand how the world works, and even what God is doing. However, we're finite, and as we learned in our lesson this week, the finite can grasp the infinite, but the finite can never hold the infinite within its grasp. When we're honest, we realize that we need God. Every moment, every breath, we need God. For goodness sake, we can't even make sense of ourselves. We need God to make sense of the world and ourselves. Praise be to God, whose ways are not our ways. Paul puts it so well in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? God has sent Christ to bring to fruition his astoundingly wise plan. Further, he has made us, his church, a display of his wisdom. How he has proven that though we may not understand his ways, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We praise you that though the powers of darkness have tried to stop your gospel, nothing can quench the truth. We praise you, incomprehensible God. Your ways are not our ways. They are so much better. We confess that we do not honor the unity you have won for us by not loving our brothers and sisters as we ought. We confess that we have not waited in faith, 
we confess that we have not had hope when things don't go the way we think they should. Thank you for Christ's great work on mending not only us, but all the things, even to the end of the universe. Thank you for suffering for our glory. Help us to remember that though we may not understand your ways, we can trust that they will prove to be glorious and good. When we don't understand our circumstances, and it seems like Satan is winning, give us faith to rest in your perfect sovereign plans and know that when it is darkest, the stars shine the brightest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.